Hello and welcome to the third season of Life on a Plate, the podcast from Waitrose, in which we talk to some very special people about food, what it means to them, and the role it has played in their life. We ask about food memories and favorite recipes, must-have ingredients, and the dishes that represent comfort, celebration, or adventure, and find out a lot more about our guests in the process. Hi, Jimmy. How are you doing? Hello. I am very good, Alison. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. I'm just really enjoying the summer and just a chance to eat outdoors and just having a little bit of a laid-back vibe. Yeah, embracing that kind of nice summer mode and getting to see people and cooking. I noticed you haven't sent me anything this week, and I'm sort of trying to be cool about it. Uh, it's absolutely fine. Like, you know, I've not come to... <laughs> rely on your packages in a quite desperate way but um what i really want to know is what you've been cooking what have you been what sort of things have you been craving and uh, and doing in the kitchen well i mean at the moment i've just been really craving and cooking lots of british seasonal veg because it's just at its peak at the moment and so i thought i'd tell you about it and rather than waste time me posting it to you you can go out and get it yourself so that it is freshest sending me out to get it myself i yeah. like that you dress that up as a and then as you a can bonus. just go and cook it straight away <laughs> rather than have it you know stuck in the post i've grown accustomed to these deliveries and now you're yanking <laughs> it away from me alison no it's all right just i think i can time. i think i can stretch the venturing out so what sorts of things are you talking about but new potatoes are still great with butter there's some really great peppers for salads and and there's juicy cherry tomatoes but my mm. current favorite is sweet corn british sweet corn is just juicy and succulent we are enormous sweet corn fans corn on the cob fans in this house you know steamed boiled yeah. drenched in butter it's just nothing better than it like that sweet freshness it's amazing there's so many things you can do with sweet corn it's so versatile and it's just at its peak right now the waitress essential yeah. corn is actually grown in west sussex and that's one of the sunniest places in UK. And it's the sunshine that's needed to ripen the corn. So yeah, it's great. It's delicious. The secret to it is cooking it as soon as possible, as soon as you get it home, because the natural sugars start to diminish and, you know, it's just not as sweet. So yeah, the sweetest it will be is when you just get it straight home. One thing that I just keep seeing a lot of as well is people doing corn ribs, which seems to just be something that has been in the restaurant world. You know, it's kind of just been in the ether for the last couple of years, really popular, generally kind of slathered in a kind of chili butter and deep fried. I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but I don't know how you turn corn into corn ribs. Is it is it something that's that's easy? Like have you have you done it? Do you know what? They're really easy and and they just look really effective. So you do need a really sharp knife, heavy sharp knife and a good chopping board and then cut the corn through the center in half. So you have two long halves and then you cut each of the long halves in either two or three thinner halves and as they cook they curl and you can deep fry them or just bake them in the oven with lots of marinade and flavoured butter and things like that they're delicious uh, well, while we are talking about the various joys of eating, uh, it seems like the perfect time to move on to our guest on this week's podcast. And it is author, Sunday Times columnist and podcaster, Dolly Alderton. She 
is somebody who absolutely nails and glories in uh, the visceral sensory pleasures of food. It's a huge part of her most recent book, Ghosts. She had recipes throughout her breakout bestseller, Everything I Know About Love. And she is somebody that from the moment we started talking to her, it was just clear that, you know, we were, we were, she was one of us basically. And we, uh, we loved having such deep, interesting conversations about food and how it's kind of shaped her life. Yeah, we talked about food from her childhood, whether it's her mum's roast chicken or little jam tarts, vinegar on chips, and just, you know, how she used to just immerse herself as a kid in, in cookery books. Yeah, it's it's clearly a huge part of her life and food is just kind of always there. And uh, she talked about just constantly thinking about it. And so it was even more interesting to hear her talk about what lockdown and the past year and pandemic has done to her relationship with food and to cooking. And she said that it was the first time that she'd kind of felt slightly disengaged from it and she was just kind of eating out of packets. I mean, I certainly related to that, you know, because she was cooking for her own on her own for most of lockdown. And, you know, that repetition, you know, I could certainly sympathise. The other thing I could really empathise with was her love of pickles and how she could quite happily clear a jar of cornichons in an afternoon. So, you know, I can <laughs> I can relate to, you know, that love of vinegary on your tongue. Yeah, it was really fascinating to hear that. I always love hearing what people crave or what they eat when they're writing and, you know, yeah. people's kind of comforts and their foods are always fascinating. And there was just so much to dig into with her. She is very funny. She's very fascinating on food. And she is, you know, just going absolutely stratospheric and from strength to strength. So it was great to catch her and great to hear about what she's got coming up. She was she was a joy. Uh, here she is. Here is our conversation with Dolly Alderton. Dolly Alderton, how are you doing? Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I... I'm a little bit late to the recording because I realised I was going to be talking about food for the next however long. And it was I, I know that when I talk about food, it makes my stomach rumble so I have to quickly wolf down some poached eggs. <laughs> that is so because that is something that we find on this show, I think, like Alison and I, like we have to like hurriedly eat something because it just gets too agonizing. We're just kind of yeah. torturing ourselves. Yeah, I'm so bad. I'm basically like I'm basically just like always hungry all the time. So any discussion about food, any vivid discussion about food, I have the most reactive stomach. Well, you're in the perfect place for that. And you're sort of among friends. And we were going to start with food and its presence, not just in your life, it sounds like, but in your writing as well. And it's evident in Ghosts, your debut novel, your most recent book, which was a huge hit and importantly for us your lead character your main character Nina is a food writer so where did that decision come from was it wish fulfillment yes first and foremost the reason was is the one of the big themes of the book is is about memory mm-hmm. and obviously food and taste uh, and appetite is massively interlinked uh with memory and obviously yeah. the two main strands of the narrative uh is about her trying to hold on to a man she she's in love with who is kind of unknowable and a lot of how she ends up feeling close to him in the book is by 
by drawing on memories. Mm. And obviously so much of memory in the initial stage of courtship is about eating together and drinking together. And then the other strand is about her dad who has dementia. And when I was doing research on dementia and the type of dementia that that character had, Mm -hmm. something that I found really interesting is how much taste is manifests in symptoms in terms Mm. of having completely different palate is something that happens a lot with dementia sufferers suddenly. Um, And the other thing that happens is they, they suddenly start craving childhood, childhood food, childhood dishes. And I think that says so much about, you know, how important those early years of life are. So anyway, it all linked in with memory. And then of course, I just like writing about food. (laughs) She's quite a sensual person. She's quite in her body and quite present. That felt like a good job for someone like that. And also it is a nod to Heartburn, which is my favorite book with the protagonist. Yes. And Heartburn was obviously about a certain type of heartbreak. My book's about a certain type of heartbreak. So I thought there was a nice parallel there between mm-hmm. both of those protagonists being food writers. Yeah. I mean, you you clearly did a lot of research, but in terms of the actual practicalities of food writers, did you have friends that were food writers that you could call upon? Obviously, Alison and I could broadly be described as food writers. Yeah. And we've just got pages of notes and kind of, you know, clarifications and we're <laughs> quibbling with the decisions that you've made. So that'll just be... But most we, of our conversation. <laughs> well, both both of us were actually saying most people don't even know that food writers exist, if you know what I mean. They just think we're a chef or a cook. So how did you do your research? Well, I'm really lucky. My editor, Julia Annan, uh, publishes cookbooks. Yeah. So she had her BDI on all the mechanics <laughs> and the details because obviously amazing yeah because because like when you're writing I'm having this in, in when I'm in my script as well because I'm writing a tv show at the moment when you're I think because I'm just I want to always get to the fun juicy bit of a story those details of like the logistics of how someone's day-to-day life works I find so boring and I would so much prefer to be like Nina is a food writer she licks jam off her fingers and then she finishes the day of work like that I'm like that's fine fine by me but like I'm very aware that for most people that's like not enough so so I was very lucky that I had uh, Juliet to really help me you know flesh out this and it's obviously very low in the mix the story it's a book about relationships but just to make it feel you know pump it up as much as possible to make it feel vaguely realistic. I really want to return to that idea of food writers and uh, people possibly seeing themselves in the book Mm -hmm. and like conflating fiction and reality. But you mentioned childhood and food memories and that's a big part of Ghosts as well. And I mean, it would be remiss to not ask you about what your childhood food memories were and what did it look like growing up it's weird with food memory I think it's such a it's such an ancient part of our brain I remember Mm. hearing A.A. Gill say that it's the part of our brain that apparently we share with lizards so I kind of have lizard memory I have sort of non-narrative memory of of food when I was really little it's kind of just bursts of of color and images and and temperature Mm. and rather than this is what we used to eat there was a pub around the corner of the flat that I grew up in that my dad used to take me to on a Saturday and it would be like hot vinegary salty chips while he read the paper and that kind of burning Mm. the roof of my mouth yeah which is still (laughs) my favorite thing and those like fluorescent jam tarts that are in a row one that's bright red and one that's bright yellow and then pen like a farfelly you know like the bow pasta yes 
you know, like peas or ham or cream or just like okay. soft, chewy, just these like these kind of small memories that I have. And then, yeah, as I get older, the main thing that I remember is just roast chicken was the thing that my mum made over and over again. So that's kind of my, yeah, adolescent memories. And at what point do you sort of start getting interested in cooking as well and joining in? It sounds like, I think you mention it a little bit in uh, your first book, Everything I Know About Love, cooking alongside your mum and your mum being this incredible sort of innate natural cook. And she's got Italian-Canadian heritage, which seems like an interesting mix. (laughs) (laughs) Did that manifest in the way that she in the way that she could? She was very experimental um, with food, and she she was always very keen to show me and my brother the world through food. So I remember, okay, yeah. So I remember every Sunday we would have lunch, and she would like theme it. She would, you know, do a different. There would okay. be like a Canadian lunch, and we'd have like North American food, and and then there would be a Chinese lunch and we'd all have fortune cookies and then there would be a spanish lunch and there would be like flamenco music playing i think that she was um we didn't travel really a lot ever as a a family we went to like yeah like classic 2.4 suburban family that like treated themselves to spain and france made spain or france every summer and then devon at easter yeah so they're they're not it's weird my mum is like not I've got such an appetite for travel, a raced appetite for travel in a way that my mum and dad just don't really have. But yeah, right, but the way that yeah. she really, I think she was always quite obsessed with the idea of not raising myopic North London children who don't have, yeah. who don't have any sort of <laughs> understand, horizontal understanding or vision of the world. So the way that she did it was, uh, yeah, often through these like food. little feasts we would yeah. have, which I think is just so lovely. So would she have been researching through books to, to have got the recipes for that? Because if she's not travelled, where is she getting the inspiration from? Yeah, and also this was pre-internet most of it, I suppose. Yeah. She has a huge collection of cookbooks and she's also... Um, She's like a, a recipe collector. I, like she has one of those cook files and a cook scrapbook. So like yeah. any time when she, when, you know, that period of the 80s where everyone was entertaining, I remember, I think it was the verb yeah. my mum <laughs> used to use. Um, she would, you know, have lunch somewhere, have dinner somewhere, call the next day, get the recipe. So I've got all these kind of borrowed recipes from family, friends and, and people that she's met along oh, the way. Yeah. At what point do you start staking a claim on sort of the kitchen in your own way and sort of your own sort of taste and your interest in food? Like, I know that for me, like chefs on TV was like a huge thing. And that was kind of the exposure to to that world. And was it the same for you? Yeah, that was a huge part. Who was who was your go-to? Who was the person that first excited Well, I you? remember Gary Rhodes, weirdly. Mm-hmm. I remember him being like, you know, quite a big one, like, you know, pre-Jamie. But obviously it was all Jamie, really. I hope this doesn't sound too cruel. There's... Um... Uh, a line in my TV show that we've been deliberating whether we t- we leave in or not because we thought it was a little bit mean. <laughs> of um, and obviously, Jimmy, I think you're a very complex um, and fascinating and charming individual. So I promise this is not me reducing you to this phrase. But there's like, oh, I'm, I'm looking there's forward like a real, to this. Go there's on. like a real basic bro in the show, and he says um, he's like does a dinner party and he's like really stressed out by it, and he says. Um, He's cooking from 15-minute meals and he says, oh, Jamie Oliver, the patron saint for all heterosexual men. And you just, you just, con- you just confirmed. It totally I have is. To leave it in. And I just completely confirmed that you've got to keep it in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Like, there's a, there's an entire type and uh, kind of man that is like, oh, that was the big bang moment for us, Jamie <laughs> ripping up herbs with his hands. And you're absolutely <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to own the cliche. <laughs> but uh, did you have someone in that yeah, kind of yeah. vein that you saw? My mum, yeah. my mum is just obsessed with Delia in in a way that I think yeah. I can't really understand. That I think is like something of her generation. D- Delia is sacrosanct. Like like she, there's a there's a relationship that she has with Delia. I think, and it's not one of like huge stimulation or even huge inspiration, but it's one of like immense trust. And I definitely yes, saw yeah. that with my mum. That like Delia was her friend. She like looked over the household at Christmas. We just needed one book. It's the same book we use now. And rather mm-hmm. like adorably, because I just was obsessed with my mum as all like little girls are. I think I just like became obsessed with Delia by default in um <laughs> in the front of the Christmas uh, recipe book in my like seven year old wobbly handwriting. It says oh. this book is for mummy only grills because I didn't know how to spell girls. Which obviously <laughs> says says quite a lot about my own gender standards. <laughs> but yeah, Delia, Delia was really. I remember the th- the first thing I made with my mum was when I was very little. It was like Christmas treats for the class, baking. We made yeah. Delia shortbread and dusted it with caster sugar and cut them into shapes and angels. Oh, and it is the best shortbread recipe ever. And it it. It you know I'm I some people they just have no interest in, in cooking or food so it shouldn't be foisted upon them but I I love I loved it and I've always been really interested in it and I've always found it really creative and if you're if I had children if they showed that kind of interest I would embed those recipes into their little minds really early on because it is like accumulation of language I think and then it means you can speak it for the rest of your life and you know age twenty one when I was doing work experience at magazines and at the end of my placement I would come in and bring Delia shortbread dusted with caster sugar so there's this like weird connection that I have to Delia Smith just because I think she was so important to my mum what about now what cookery books do you go to for inspiration when you're cooking if Delia was the foundation yes that is that's exactly it Alison it is that she's the foundation I very rarely will go to her now for new stuff like every time I do like a a, like a Christmas lunch or whatever I'll go to her but now the books I return to the most are the River Cafe books okay that kind of easy simple Mediterranean yeah and also now that I'm not in my 20s or a student and I have like a little bit more money for ingredients the river cafe book is a great book because it's basically about presenting really fresh quality seasonal ingredients in a way that doesn't feel alienating or scary to me anymore that's like part of the, the joy mm. and the process of cooking for people and cooking for yeah, myself yeah, so I yeah. love those books and like yeah as you said I love the simplicity of them I obviously go back to Nigel Slater over and over again yeah Mira soda, I love. I'm always cooking from Mira soda. Do you use those type of recipes when you're cooking for yourself or do you just save them for cooking for friends? Do you know, it, I was thinking about food this morning when I, before when I was thinking about this podcast and you've kind of caught me at the strangest moment of my life in terms of my res- my relationship to cooking. But I'd be interested to hear how it's affected you guys because I always prided myself in the fact that, you know, I've lived on my own for quite a while now and even when I lived with girls, I always I made meals and occasion. And I always, I liked making, you know, making a batch of something and then on a Sunday and eating it throughout the week. Or I, I'm someone who has like 
a very vested interest in their own <laughs> pleasure compulsions. So, like, if if, <laughs> if I suddenly start thinking about, like, I don't know, moussaka at three o'clock, it will be in my head for four hours. It will all I will think about, and then I will go to the Middle Eastern shop and get every. Yeah, I have to do it, and I've always been like that. And it's like I really just like follow my appetite and something just happened to me in lockdown where I just don't cook anymore but not for myself if I have people around I I will um but the day-to-day I basically don't normally I would do like a weekly shop like I go to my local uh, grocers like uh, fruit and veg guy every couple of days like I go to the cheese shop I do it was really a part of my my week and i basically have eaten out of packets (laughs) for a year I'm not letting myself feel too weird about it because I can't I do think it will come back but I think basically what happened was I was so isolated particularly in that first lockdown that every time I would cook and use the utensils and then wash up and then put them in the rack it would somehow make me engage in this idea of how every meal takes you closer to death, not to be too... <laughs> there was something about the routines of it that yeah, felt really existentially, yeah. like gave me vertigo of like, oh, there's that plate, four hours time, I'll be using it again, and then I'll wash it up, and then I'll put the plate back on the thing. And then, and just the routines of it just felt so unpleasurable that I just had to abandon cooking. No, I'm totally with you. I think even having a wife and two kids and a family, when we were all kind of together and it was that, the rhythms and the routines of it just did become almost like suffocating, like in yeah, some ways. And the, um, exactly. the, the improvisational joy of all... Oh, I'm going to cook tonight because, and then I'm going to go to a restaurant the other night, like that was stripped away. Yeah. And so it was like, wow, this is just this. But that's really yeah. interesting to hear that it, that it did, that it did that to you. You mentioned cooking for friends there. And obviously we're in a time now where we can sort of have people over. Is that, that feels like something that you've always really loved. And, uh, you know, you write about it and talk about it in, in your first book and, restaurants and it feels like even throughout what you call your roaring 20s and that quite messy time of life and you know the dating columnist and that vision of you you were always keeping that groundedness of I'm gonna cook have people round yeah I mean my biggest fear honestly is falling in love with a man who likes to cook (laughs) I can't think of anything worse because I'm such a kitchen control freak it is it is like how I express my love and I can't I can't I'm just really lucky in my group of friends that it's because you know there are lots of great cooks in my group of friends but they just know how much joy it brings how me much so it means they, to you yeah yeah so they've just kind of let me become the the, the cooking megalomaniac oh that's interesting about men because I was going to ask about that and obviously you've been a dating columnist and I think I read uh, in Vogue actually though this is not directly related to dating but you were called the unofficial doyen of the female millennial experience so um <laughs> <laughs> which puts absolutely no pressure on me <laughs> yeah. yeah at once a sort of ego stroke and just terrifying pressure but but it does point to the fact that you are someone that people look to or have looked to for for advice or observations around the kind of the ways in which that generation interact and I wondered in terms of food like and dating there are all these rules you hear about things you shouldn't order or eat on a first date is it important to you that like a man is interested in food 
but not but not necessarily so interested that he takes over the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. So I have very very specific ideas about this, <laughs> which is probably why I'm still single. So I would love someone who loves food but loves being cooked poor um, and isn't controlling in the kitchen. I have been on so many dates with men who obviously have have what probably would be would be seen as because I basically think we have such a rich language for like female disordered eating and we don't so much with men and I feel like I've been on so many dates with men who were like you know not drinking because it's leg day at 6am the next day or like they're only eating sweet potato and and dry chicken breasts for a month while they're like shredding and getting ready for iron man or whatever you're absolutely right yeah and, and, and no one talks about this really or that much yeah no and and that is you know if, if you're being that limited with your food and you're cutting off that that part of your brain that that responds to food as in a pleasurable way like that that is a problem and I just I don't like this idea about rules about what you should or shouldn't eat Mm. because I think any sort of denial or self-flagellation I just find it just really unfair yeah and you've you've written as well about your own sort of experience of that like you write like really movingly really hilariously in the first book about your relationship with that growing up and the things that family would say and people passing judgment on your body and what you're eating and then sort of going through that kind of strange process of getting to this point of understanding basically with it totally and and I must say as well like as someone who's been through all that stuff in a in a really quite like horrific way I'm I have nothing but sympathy and compassion for people who are still in the thick of it because people who are so ruled by um you know those ideas of of discipline or or people who who are suffering from eating disorder you know there's nothing they want more than to be able to just drink a bottle of wine and wolf carbs down like it's really embarrassing when that's when you're suffering with that stuff so I have massive compassion for it but I just think yeah, just in terms of like the rules of what people should or shouldn't be eating on dates. I just think if someone is, I personally don't like seeing like a prissy eater. <laughs> you want to see them enjoying their food. Yes, exactly. Mm. And so how someone finds like pleasure and responds to food is similarly how they will respond to loads of other sensory things. So I just, I there's nothing I love more than being around like and find sexier than being around a man or a woman who can just like really relish their food and really enjoy their appetite Mm. yeah yeah we've talked about your first book a little bit and it was you know obviously a huge bestseller incredibly successful and you know those quotes like that doyen one came out Mm. of that and what was that like for you because obviously it was such an incredible moment and you were being rightly kind of um, congratulated on on a really a really impressive book we had Candice Carty Williams on on the show who's um, oh, brilliant and yeah. and she was just talking about how noisy it was and how did you kind of deal with that noise Candice and I have sent many an Instagram DM to each other in the dead of night when we're both suffering from insomnia it was very very strange and it was very very wonderful so it was a, a duality of things it was life-changing and freeing in so many ways um and it was terrifying and stultifying in so many ways and it made me you know, I, I don't I, I can't stress enough how much more it has given t- to my life and taken away from it and uh, I'm so fortunate 
I'm so, I'm so happy that the last few years has happened. I'm so glad that that book, that I wrote that book. I'm so glad that it was received the way it was received. To be totally honest, so I wrote it four years ago. Um, it was published three years ago. I'm still trying to kind of trying to make sense of it. And I think um, I will maybe be able to understand all of it better and what the pros were and what the cons were and the effect that it had on me and the, the way that it changed me overwhelmingly for the better and the things that, that it, you know, that I then had to navigate. I think I probably won't be able to know that for quite a while. Yeah, yeah, and, of course, um, yeah. You know, there are also like, I remember listening to an interview with Elizabeth Gilbert who wrote Eat, Pray, Love. And mm, obviously yeah. when you're talking about that book, you're talking about like it, stratospheric yeah, where I can't yeah, even yeah. fathom mm. success. But she, she said, I'm kind of thinking of this quite a lot at the moment because we're like, we've just, we're just in the middle of casting the TV adaptation of that memoir. And, uh, but the interview said to her, how did it feel to see Julia Roberts play you? What was it like to be on location? What was it like to be on set? What was it like to see, real painful moments and conversations and intimate moments and emotional internal moments be man- made manifest and externalized externalized on like this enormous budget with uh, hundreds and hundreds of crew and people responsible for it and she said I don't think I've got my ha- head around it and I don't think I'll ever get my head around it and I think sometimes sometimes things happen in your like I wonder if you, you can answer me this, Jim, but I wonder if like having kids is a bit like this. Like sometimes I look at my friends' babies and I'll think about the fact that I saw the moment that their mum and dad met in a bar yeah, and I can't yeah. quite get my head around how that has all happened. And I don't know, maybe, maybe the answer is just to like, you never really you never really can make sense of those huge life-changing moments. Yeah, there's a yearning for a sort of neat bow of like understanding, isn't there? But it, I think it's quite liberating to think it, it. You probably won't know. Like it will never come really that you'll that you'll completely know. And certainly when you're so cl- so close to something, um, it was a memoir. It was kind of you use your own life, and it was interspersed with recipes, which was mm. um, which seems like a nod to Nora Ephron as well. Was that where that came from? Yeah, so that the recipes are one of the things that anger my one-star Amazon reviewers the most. Because <laughs> it's literally like a recipe for a fried egg sandwich. Um, <laughs> um, and I do understand why it might feel just so incongruous to people or just like, you know, why is this woman who is so clearly not a cook or a chef um, telling us what we should be eating? It was actually my agent's idea and it was because every story that I was writing in the book, she was the one who noticed like food seemed to be like, there was some sort of dish or some sort of meal that was in there. So she was like, I think you should start including recipes. And then really, you know, there's a reason why with with the cover of um, my first book that it ended up, you know, it's like lots of words with scribbles Mm. on the front. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is about a young woman trying to make sense of the world like she's processing her thoughts as she's writing it Mm. and that was you know that's what was happening when I was writing it I was I was 28 and I was writing about the end of it the end of it was about being 28 like I was the last chapter of the book is about me moving into this flat on my own I was literally moving and I was writing that chapter with boxes around me that it was (laughs) in real time in the moment and I just yeah and I think that there's something about that like scribbling of thoughts and someone Mm. like kind of opening a diary Mm. that felt like these recipes and these kind of scraps of 
felt like it just added to that atmosphere that it was it's it's about intimacy and proximity with the memoirist i think those books so it just felt it just felt like it was bringing people closer in So we need to talk about food a little bit more and I want to talk about the kind of cooking that you do when you're not in the kind of lockdown enforced packets mode that you've been in for a while. What kind of things are you drawn to? Is, is, it, is it still that kind of river cafe, very simple Italian inflected kind of stuff that, you're, that, you, that you normally go back to? Yes, I normally go back to a piece of grilled fish and salads mm. and vegetables I love pasta, so I'm always trying mm. out new pasta. And then as I've got older, I, I'm really just like day-to-day food that feels like really nourishing and, and is so tasty. More and more I'm cooking, you know, Vietnamese food and Thai food. But then equally, like, I also just love a fish finger sandwich. <laughs> and I love a baked potato with so much butter and marmite on it. And yeah, I have, I suppose, as I said, because I'm someone who like just kind of follows exactly what it is within reason. What I normally do is I normally have one thing that I become obsessed with and then I cook every day for two weeks and then I can't eat it again for a year. Yeah. Yeah. What about while you're writing? Do you have any snacks or anything like that that keeps you going? Yes, there are things that I always have in my fridge in my cupboard, particularly when I'm on a deadline because I can't, as well as drinking just like endless cups of tea, I have to, basically anytime I'm anxious, I have to be stuffing something in my gob. So I love any kind of smoked or salted nut, mm, smoked, nice. particularly smoked almonds. Oh, I get yeah, those incredible. big packs of those. Oh, they're so good. <laughs> I love anything vinegary. So I have a whole pickle shelf in my fridge and I can like eat a jar of cornichons in one sitting and regularly do. Yeah, I love pickled walnuts. My mouth is literally watering. It's actually actually the products rather than like a, I was expecting you to say there was always in your cupboard was going to be a bottle of malt vinegar or something like that. No, pickled, pickled pickled products. It does something to me. It like, wakes up my brain and and makes me feel satisfied in a way that no other flavor or texture can like anything pickled like i i hate to say pickled onions i can just sit on a deadline stuff in those in my mouth <laughs> i love i just love anything like sour vinegary is uh great for me mm. You say you love travel when you go abroad and um, when we were able to go abroad again, you know, how did you go about holidays? Does food play a big part of it? Food is such an important part of how I see a place and it's how I access all my memories normally. Most of my memories of being in a new place and it's why I do so much traveling on my own because yeah. <laughs> uh, there are so many friends that I have who I adore, but who just don't have the same commitment to seeking out like, you know, I, I remember when I the, the last kind of huge trip I did was to Vietnam and it was like I needed to go and find I couldn't just find a banh mi when we were in Hoi An. I had to go find the banh mi that like Anthony Bourdain said was the best <laughs> yeah, banh mi, yeah. even though it was only like, you know, cost 99p and we were just going to have it with a beer sitting on the side of the road. Yeah, I don't yeah. care. I have to go find it. And 
It's like I, I just need, yeah, once again, I'm sounding like the most unrelaxed person. No, I'm laughing because I'm, yeah, I feel like we're probably the same, aren't we? I think, <laughs> I think I'm the same. I, I, there are some friends I can't go on holiday with because yeah. they just yeah. don't care about food as much and, or yeah, don't understand. Like, this place looks fine and you're like, absolutely oh, not. Oh, there's my, nothing, yeah. yeah, there's nothing that upsets me more than being in a new exciting place when you only have three meals a day and you're only there for a limited limited time. And making a poor choice with a meal, it really (laughs) bums me out. So do you do research before you go? Yes, I do research before I go. um, And then I'll always want to do, and again, this is just the joy of traveling when you're a little bit older that you can Mm. like spend a bit of money in a way that you don't when you're younger. Like I want to try the stuff that everyone is eating and I Mm. want to try, and I also want to go to a nice restaurant and see what like, the high high end dining is in that mm. place and then also yeah. what just like street food is and what lunch is there for like for most people and what everyday food is and then what will normally happen is I will become completely obsessed with one thing think about it on the plane home and then make it so like in Porto I think Porto was maybe the best meal of my life mm, and I wow. had um turbot Mm. And it was right, it was the restaurant was so weird. It was like <laughs> right on, it was like the fish, like the fish market area of Porto. It's the most beautiful city. And we literally sat in this like basically industrial estate. <laughs> and but we were just told this is where you can get like the freshest, best yeah. fish. And yeah. they, all straight you could do the- is, yes, yeah, straight, straight out of the sea. And yeah. you just get a piece of fish and then they serve it so simply with just green salad and boiled potatoes. But mm. it was so good and then after that I came home and I just became and since have become so obsessed with turbot like turbot is (laughs) I love turbot so much if there's ever turbot on a menu I force everyone (laughs) to order it and what about plans for the future when when we're able to properly go traveling again have you got anywhere on your list that you're hoping to go and eat yeah like like any basic millennial woman I'm obviously just like yearning for Paris Paris is my favorite city in the world and it's like my favorite places to eat are in Paris there's a restaurant called Chez Genoux in Mm -hmm. um, the Marais and the, truly the minute because King's Cross is like down the road from my flat the minute I'm allowed I'll just go there for a day and I think I'll just go to Chez Genou and just sit there and have yeah. they do like wow. um they do this like salt cod mashed potato thing which is so good wow. lovely oh, God. and they do an amazing ratatouille and then they've got this really famous chocolate mousse and they've got I'm just like the Parisian food like bistro food is it's delicious I can't wait to to eat that again. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do kitchen grill. Quick fire, 10 questions, tea or coffee? Oh, I can't choose. I have two coffees in the morning. I'm so specific about them. (laughs) One skinny latte, one Mm. oat milk flat white. And then I drink... (laughs) I sound like a nightmare in this podcast. I feel like (laughs) it's incredibly incredibly exacting rules. It's Yorkshire tea. And it's um, a very specific colour that I like to call thick amber. Okay. Um, <laughs> nice, yeah. And I've had many rows with people who don't understand what it is when I say that. Basically, I like tea to be both strong and milky. Strong and milky means- paradox. I'm with you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You with yeah, me, yeah, Jimmy? Yeah, yeah. I'm so totally like, with you. Yeah. But why don't people understand? It's like you leave the bag in for ages yeah. and then you put in a big chunk yes. of milk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
it's yeah. good. It's always wild when you sort of get to somebody's house and you remember that they make bad tea or like somebody mm. agrees, oh, I'll make your tea and there's a weird sort of cold war. Over, oh, no, I'll make it. No, 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 I'll like <laughs> sort of. And yeah, you're just like, this is going to be a horrible waste of tea. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not nice. Uh, mash or chips? Oh, my God. <laughs> They're absolutely Can brutal, have- these questions. Like, I just, I'm so passionate about potatoes, Alison. I just can't. It's like Sophie's choice. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <sighs> Mash, I think. Mash it has to be mash. Yeah, mm. I'm obsessed with mashed potato. Mm. Yeah, it's, and it needs to be obviously like the potato needs to be there to hold the butter together. Yeah, <laughs> nice. That's basically basically it's just a bowl of butter. Mm. Lovely. Uh, baguette or sourdough? Baguette, I think. Nice warm baguette. baguette. Nice, nice warm baguette again, slathered with butter. I do love sourdough, and I like that it doesn't bloat you, and I like that like the craft of it or whatever mm. but you know sometimes you just need an upper you crust. just need a baguette you do yeah. baguette yeah. <laughs> sometimes you just need a baguette <laughs> I think I know the answer to this butter or olive oil butter I'm obsessed with butter like absolutely obsessed with butter sometimes I remember reading an article by the food writer Lauren Bravo and it was the first time that I had seen my truth reflected <laughs> which is she said when she's cooking she sometimes if she's using really good butter with particularly one of the salt crystals in she will slice a teeny tiny really thin razor thin slice to eat it from the smack i don't think you're alone in that that's uh, <laughs> it's so lovely uh, fruit or veg veg i'm obsessed with vegetables mm. i'm like i just feel like i didn't really know how to cook vegetables for such a long time and now now i do mainly just use a lot of butter and salt do you yeah. have a favorite one Oh, I love courgette. I love mm. courgette. Mm. I love cauliflower. Oh, tomatoes. No tomato. Oh, the tomatoes are fruit, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I feel like grey area. They can yeah. be both. Grey area. <laughs> I'd call yeah. veg in this Officially context. fruit, but I'd say, yeah. Yeah, tomato salad, I think, is like maybe my favourite thing oh, in the God. whole world. Yeah, yeah. Got to have yeah. a generous bit of salt on the top of there. Oh, big time, yeah. The one yeah. at uh, Quo Vardis. I know that. <gasps> going on about. Yeah. So good, good, so Very good. good. Spicy or mild? Spicy. I love heat mm. as well as my vinegar shelf. I have a hot sauce shelf. Nice. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, restaurant meal or a sofa supper? Restaurant meal. I kind of never want to eat on the sofa ever again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally acting like Michael Winner, who apparently famously used to have his like three meals out a day. I'm like, even on the walk home from work at the moment, I'm like, oh, might go into prep for my dinner. <laughs> cheese, cheese or pudding? Cheese. I don't really have a sweet tooth. Mm. I love cheese. Interesting. Yeah. Nice. High tech or wooden spoon? Wooden spoon. Basically, every kitchen gadget I've ever, I've ever bought. I end up throwing away in frustration. I think sometimes it's like the washing of it as well and the faff and the getting it. Yeah, like, yeah, it is the just, washing yeah. of it. You're so right. Just it like, is the oh, washing. I can't face it. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. What trauma. What trauma. I know. We really in. hard. <laughs> really hard life. Yeah. <laughs> and recipe or freestyling? Oh, mixed between the both, I think, which is mm. why I'm, I am the world's worst baker. And mm. so okay. that is the absolute opposite of what baking requires. <laughs> but then if you've not got a sweet tooth, you've not got the motivation to to really crack yeah. baking and baking cakes and that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. I've just I mess up every single thing that I bake because I get too impatient. 
Like the number of cake sponges that I have iced while it's still piping hot, <laughs> just to see the icing dribble down the side of it. I'm just too much of a child to bake. Oh. I can't deal with it. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. The, the rigour of baking, I sort of appreciate from afar, but uh, can't, can't replicate. But, you know, Me you've too. cracked Delia's. Exactly. Yeah. Shortbreads. Shortbreads. That's all you need. That's all you need. Yeah. Yeah. That is the kitchen grill. There you go. You've been yeah. grilled. I've been grilled. It's great to hear you talk about food and pleasure and memory and travel in that kind of way that, you know, Alison and I can definitely relate to. And this has just been so much fun and so interesting as well. So thank you very much for joining us, Dolly. Thank you so much. I've loved talking to both of you. And I hope next time we can uh, be in a restaurant, maybe. You've been listening to Life on a Plate from Waitrose. I'm Jimmy Famarewa. Thank you to my co-host, Alison Okavy, and our guest, Dolly Alderton. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find lots more like it by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the series, go to waitrose.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>